Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Imagine with me that you are standing on the wing of an airplane. Just the place you want to be. The airplane is going to crash and you must jump. And you have two options to save yourself. You can, number one, flap your arms really hard and try with all your effort to fly or number two you can pull the cord on your parachute that's been provided to you and trust it to bring you safely to the ground which one are you going to choose I think Everyone in their right mind would go with the parachute that has been provided them. Because we know we can't save ourselves. Well, why then, when it comes to salvation, being saved from sin, why do we try to save ourselves through our own efforts, through our own righteousness, rather than trusting in the perfect righteousness that's provided for us in Christ. That's our subject today. In Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verses tw- verse 20, the better part of three chapters, if you've been with us, Paul has proven that there is none righteous. There is none righteous, no, not One, none who does good. All of us, Paul says, are unrighteous sinners and there's nothing we can do being under the power of sin to save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. However, the good news of the gospel, and gospel means good news, is that God has provided for us His righteousness in Christ. He provided a perfectly capable parachute for us. We're not righteous, but He is, and He gives us His righteousness. Actually, we see this in Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul says, In it, or the the it, the gospel is the power of salvation unto everyone who believes. Because in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So Paul is going to explain what he means by that. He introduced that concept in chapter 1 in the introduction. And in chapter 3, verse 21 through uh, 31... He goes into detail on that and what he means. He explains the gospel. If you've ever wanted to know what the gospel is, here we go. Here we are. 
And I can't tell you what an honor it is to preach on this text. This is the central text of Romans, everyone. Some people consider this to be the central text of the Bible when it comes to redemption and salvation and how we're saved from sin. It's right here. If you want to know how to get to heaven, you want to spend eternity with God, here it is. I'm going to give you the good news. <laughs> okay? First, we're going to see the manifestation of righteousness in verses 21 through 22. Let's work our way through this text. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So those words, but now, are often Paul's way of moving from a really dark and gloomy picture like the one he painted in Romans chapter 1 through 3, the bad news that we're all sinners, and now it's, he's moving from that dark and gloomy picture to something wonderful that God does for us. When Paul uses that phrase, but now, you need to watch out and pay attention because he's moving from something dark to something light. Something, some really good news. We've looked at the bad news. Now we turn to the good news. We're unrighteous, but now we see God's righteousness provided for us in the gospel. And we need to define that phrase a little bit this morning. The righteousness of God. What is this phrase? What is the righteousness of God? Well, at least one time in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 5, it's a reference to the attribute of God's justice. God's righteous character. That's how most people understand it, right? The, the righteousness of God. God is righteous. We're not. It's that simple. God is righteous, and his righteousness is sometimes seen in his saving activity. That's another way to understand it. His saving activity. In the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms and Isaiah, God's righteousness is described as being the basis of his saving activity. In his righteousness, he saves us. Romans 5.18, though, calls Jesus' sacrifice on the cross an act of righteousness. So this could, righteousness of God, could refer to God's character or God's actions. It's who he is and what he does. But there's other times where this phrase is going to be a crucial gospel-defining phrase. And if we're going to understand the gospel, we've got to get a handle on this phrase. It's so important. We need to see it sometimes not as an attribute of God or necessarily an activity of God, but as a status given to sinners who have faith in Christ as their Savior from sin. They are given the righteousness of God. Given the righteousness of God. A free gift given to sinners upon faith in Christ. And so the of God part at the end of that phrase, <clears throat> in the righteousness of God, is reflecting not necessarily God's righteousness, his character, but referencing an origin of a status that he gives to us. The righteousness is of God or from God. Those who have faith in Christ are given his righteousness as opposed to their own. So we are unrighteous, 
sinners, but God is righteous. Therefore, in order for a sinful man to be saved and to dwell with God, and dwell in his presence eternally, we need his righteousness credited to our account. It's an accounting term. It's a forensic judicial status. Romans 5.17 calls it the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. Because God gives it to those who trust in, believe in, have faith in Christ. All those things, just all saying the same thing in your Bible. Trust, faith, believe come from the same Greek root. What are you trusting in for your salvation? Is it your own righteousness or is it his righteousness provided to you. Paul says it's, the, it's in the gospel that the righteousness of God has been revealed. It's been manifested. Notice, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So faith in Christ, if you want the righteousness of God, faith in Christ is the vehicle or the means through which the righteousness of God comes to you and becomes your possession. It's through faith. And that's, this is man's greatest need, is the righteousness of God. You need to possess this, <laughs> or you're not getting into heaven. Our greatest need is not money. It's not a savings account. It's not our home. It's not a home. It's not, our, it's not stuff. It's not even, it's not health. My greatest need is not health. My greatest need is not even a long life. My, our greatest need is the righteousness of God. We aren't getting into heaven without it. And what Paul has explained in Romans 2.3 is that there's a lot of people who try to get to heaven with their own righteousness. They try to produce their own righteousness through the keeping of the Mosaic Law, like the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, 613 commands in that law, or by doing religious rituals, keeping moral codes, keeping up with your conscience, that sort of thing. But as Paul says, if you're looking for the righteousness of God, don't look to the law. He says it's apart from law. Did you catch that? Apart from law, if you want to be righteous, don't look to the law. The righteousness of God you're not going to get it there. You're going to get it through faith in Jesus Christ. In the gospel, you must look to Christ. When Paul says, apart, but now apart from law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's interesting. In the Greek, there's no definite article, the, there. So it would say, apart from law. Remember, they've done some translating here. But in the Greek, it just says, apart from law, the righteousness is revealed. And this is why you've got to pay attention to Paul's use of the word law in Romans. Sometimes it's not a reference to the Mosaic law. Sometimes it's just that they wrote, well, sometimes it's a reference to laws in like a governing principle. See, when, like when the Apostle Paul wrote, they wrote in all capital letters, basically, uncial letters. With no spaces, and so, and so there, you can't see the law, or if it's a, you know, a big L or a little L. That wasn't developed for a little bit longer. And so the translators have to determine by the grammar, by the context, what he's talking about here. And they, 
judged based on the context, 19 through 20, at least in my translation, that he's talking about the law. But it's very possible, and I think that his use of the word law here, as he uses it at other times, is more like a governing principle. He's saying, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Basically, Paul's excluding any law in general. Doesn't, we're not saved by a law of works at all. Be it the Mosaic law, or the laws that legalists make up by their own imagination, or moralists, who, who there's moralists and legalists out there right now, who are saying, if you want to get to heaven, you got to do this, and this, and this, and this, and you got to keep the law, you got to keep my law, right? Can't wear your jeans too tight, can't cut your hair too long, you know, can't keep your hair too long, all sorts of different things. Can't, you know play cards and go to the movies and that sort of thing. But people have all sorts of laws that they come up with. And what Paul's saying is here is that apart from law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. We're not saved by a principle of law, but a principle of what? Grace. Because if it's by law, then it's by works. If it's by grace, then it's, it's free. It's through faith. So, the reason why this is why it has to be by grace and why it can't be by law or by works of the law is because God cannot accept anything less than absolute perfect righteousness. And as we looked at in Romans chapter 2, we've seen none of us are righteous, not even the moralist. Even the moralist who thinks he's righteous has his own self-righteousness fall short of the glory of God. God is perfect. If you want to get to heaven, you want to dwell with him, you've got to be perfect being perfect and holy he must judge sin but we've all sinned and so it doesn't matter how much we flap our arms our righteousness that we think we're producing through our good works or our religious works it ain't gonna fly before God it's never enough and that's why we have to put our faith in the perfect parachute that Christ has provided for us or we won't be saved listen to Paul in Philippians 3 9 he says we must be found in Christ this was his desire. He says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, here it is, which comes from God on the basis of faith. Same concept, right? Look at Romans chapter 11 with me. Chapter 10. Actually, chapter 10, verse 1, he's talking about Israel. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own through the law, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that a man who practices righteousness, the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. So this is what we're talking about, the righteousness not based on law and works, but on faith in Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness that saves us. Do you get that? <laughs> heaven's doors are going to open for you. 
You, re- you guys, we all know Martin Luther, the reformer, 500 years ago. He thought, he thought that the righteousness of God was always talking about that character of God, the attribute of God, until he got into God's word and Romans, and through a serious study of Romans, understood, and he hated this term back in the day. He hated the righteousness of God because he knew he wasn't righteous. But through his study of Romans, he realized this is a status. This is a gift that God gives to us. And when he understood that, he said it was like heaven's gates opened and the Spirit of God flooded upon his soul. That's what it was like for him. He, you know what he did? You know what he did? He understood the gospel, finally. He got it. Just by understanding what that phrase meant in Romans. In the second half of verse 21, Paul says, This righteousness, which is so foreign to the self-righteous people, the religious people, moralists. Paul says, This righteousness that I'm preaching wasn't new. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets. What's he mean by the law and the prophets? Just the Old Testament. That's basically the division of the Old Testament right there. The law and the prophets. It's a reference to the Old Testament. And so Paul's saying, look, this righteousness through faith... And not works of the law. This is nothing new. This isn't coming from left field, what I'm telling you. It's not unforeseen. This is what the Old Testament taught. And he's going to spend chapter 4 in the Old Testament with a guy named Abraham who existed before the law, before circumcision, and say that Abraham was justified by faith given God's righteousness before he was ever circumcised, before the law ever came into existence. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so let's, let's look at why we must trust Christ. Let's look at the provision of righteousness now. The provision of righteousness, verses 22 through 24. We'll start with 22 and 23. Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know these verses, don't we? By heart, most of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul reminds us that everyone needs God's provision here. There isn't a single one of us who doesn't need the provision of righteousness in Christ. There's no distinction. All have sinned, Jew or Gentile, all fall short of the glory of God. Because none of us have met God's standards perfectly. And falling short is a really great way to describe sin and trying to attain to a righteous standard, it sort of conveys the, the idea of climbing to an unreachable height, falling short. Pretend that, right, if you want to be saved, basically, you got you to gotta reach up and you got to touch the moon. you got to reach the moon. you got to touch it. We can all try to climb to the moon. Someone might climb a tree to try to touch the moon. Someone might try to climb a mountain to touch the moon. Someone might try to climb a skyscraper to touch the moon. The sad reality is none of us can in our own efforts. We don't have the ability to touch the moon. We all fall terribly short. Now, some of us might get closer to the moon than others, but we all fall short, terribly short. And that's the way it is with righteousness. Some of us might be more righteous than others, the moralist, the Greek moralist might be more righteous than the, the pagan, Gentile, who, of Romans chapter 1. But he still falls 
terribly short. We're all lawbreakers, and so none of us can abide with God in perfect glory. That's what he's saying there. Psalm 5.4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil can dwell with you. So we gotta, there's a problem here that needs to be remedied, right? And the bad news is we can't on our own. The good news is we all qualify for this gift in verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Lots of big words in there, right? Justification, redemption, propitiation. Let's, let's define them. Paul brings up justification first, which means to be declared righteous. It means to be acquitted of guilt. You, you acquit of guilt an unrighteous party. You're declared righteous. And righteousness and justification are basically two sides of the same coin. Again, these words come from the same root word, in the Greek, to be justified is to be declared righteous. You're righteous, you're justified. There you have it. And so it's natural for him to continue his discussion of righteousness by talking about justification. And I find it interesting. I was thinking about this this week, thinking this is the gospel passage of gospel passages. If you want to know what the gospel, pa- gospel is, you turn here, right? And it's in this gospel passage that Paul uses all of these big words <laughs> that we have to define. Why? Why is he using big words? Because he wants to make it clear. He wants to be precise. That's why. He wants to be precise. And I'm convinced that sometimes the reason people don't come to Christ is not that they haven't heard or or maybe not that they haven't had the God. I think, it's, I think it's that they haven't had the gospel explained to them sufficiently enough. And that's what Paul's doing here. He wants no mistake as to what the gospel is. He wants this church established in the gospel. He wants to see people understand it. And sometimes that means getting into the details of what it means. And... Uh, I praise the Lord for him, this uh, theologian that God gave us. Uh, justification, though, is the act whereby the act of God, whereby He declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's how you could summarize verse 24 in a nutshell. And memorize this. Memorize the fact. Or work it into your, that gray matter up there in your skull, like I have to, that this is an act of God. It's a once for all act. It's not a process. This is a declaration declaring someone righteous. Like a judge lays down the gavel, right? And says innocent. Think of it like a courtroom. Because Roman Catholicism teaches that justification is a process. They confuse justification with sanctification. Sanctification is a process where we become more and more like Christ through the work of the Spirit. It's a process that takes place throughout our our lives. But justification 
is the once for all, I've believed in Christ's salvation moment when a sinner trusts Christ and God says, you are saved, you're my child. And he puts his spirit in them and seals them forever as a child of God. So don't confuse justification with sanctification. If you confuse it with sanctification, then justification and grace become a work. Because it's through your good works and it's through your religious works and your keeping of the sacraments and all of this that you eventually become justified. But if you interpret justification that way as a process, it won't make any sense when you read your Bible. Justification is a declaration that will never be repealed. It's the moment where we go from being at war with God to at peace with God, as we'll look at in chapter 5. But the fact that righteousness is a gift tells us that. I mean, if Catholicism is true, that they teach that grace is something you can earn through good works and religious works, then it can't be a gift anymore. But Paul says here in the Bible that grace is a gift. This is a gift to you. A gift is not something that can be earned. A gift is something that's free. In fact, he's going to call it a free gift several times in Romans 5. A gift is not something you pay for. A gift is not something you work for. It has zero cost to you. If it's, I mean, to call it a free gift is redundant, but it's pressing the message home that you can't work for this gift. Because if, if you've worked for it, then it's what you've earned. And it's not given to you. And so... This is something that you receive. Salvation is something you receive by faith in Christ. And Paul is going to contrast faith with work because faith, I don't know why guys do this, but some consider this, some consider faith a work. The Bible just doesn't teach that it is. Faith is resting in what God has done for you. It's freely receiving the gift of eternal life that God has extended to you. It's opposed, it's contrasted with earning something. Faith has been described as the hand of the heart. It doesn't work to earn salvation. It just accepts freely what God has provided for you. Redemption is another word that demolishes the idea that grace could be earned. Look at the word redemption. It means to purchase out of or to buy back. To purchase out of or to buy back. It was applied to the the money that would pay to secure a slave's freedom. It's a price paid for release. And in Christ... God paid the price to secure our release from bondage to sin and the law. And he can now offer it salvation to us as a gift because he paid it all. Where was that price paid? On the cross. What, did Jesus, what was Jesus' last words on the cross? To Stelestai. Paid in full. It was an accounting term. They found it on accounting bills. You know, the the from that day and age, to tell us die on your bill, paid in full. If it's paid for, can you still pay for it then? No, it's already been paid in full. Now it's a gift to you. And uh, verse 25 says, uh, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So propitiation is another term 
that demolishes the idea that we could work for grace. That doesn't even make sense. Paul says in Romans 11, I think it's 6, right? If it's, if it's by works, then grace is no longer grace. I mean, by definition, grace has to be free. And uh, propitiation is another term that demonstrates that, that Paul used here. Propitiation means to satisfy one's wrath and cover it or atone it. To satisfy God's wrath and to cover it or atone it. You might say, I propitiated my wife's wrath by taking her out to dinner. I satisfied it. Not really, but even the Greeks used the word in reference to sacrifices made to the gods to appease the anger of the gods. And Paul is saying that Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, propitiates, satisfies God's wrath Against us. Isn't that good news? Wow. That God's wrath against your sin has been satisfied by Christ's work on the cross. Covered. My sins are covered. What's interesting is that in the Septuagint, that would be the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word was used for the mercy seat cover on the ark. The ark yeah, that dwelt in the, the tabernacle or the temple, if you're familiar with that Old Testament uh, law system. They would sprinkle blood once a year on the Day of Atonement on that mercy seat. It was a public thing that they did. The high priest would, at the temple compound with everybody watching, he would sacrifice a bull for himself so he could approach God. Can't approach God without a sacrifice. And then two goats and a ram for the people as a burnt offering. And so that's what I think Paul is referencing here in Romans is that that, that day of atonement was a graphic picture of the public blood sacrifice that Jesus was as he hung upon the cross. On a place where everybody could see as they're coming into Jerusalem. He satisfied God's wrath as our sinless substitute, like the ram or goats did on the Day of Atonement. And verse 25 reveals that uh, this wasn't just to grant us his righteousness, as we've been thinking of it, but it's also to demonstrate God's righteous character as well. There is a way in which the gospel does reveal God's righteous character. Look at verse 25 and 26. This was to demonstrate, halfway through verse 25, his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So suffice it to say that by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, every man knows that God is perfectly righteous. Because of what he did. It, when you see the Son of God hanging on a cross, you obviously see that God is righteous and he won't accept anything else. He won't accept anything less. He wouldn't and he won't. His perfect righteous standard was manifested through the crucifixion of his perfectly sinless son. He had to have a 
perfect substitute. I mean, if there was any other way to get to God other than through Christ and his sacrifice, then he didn't need to come and die, did he? I mean, that's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. If you could get to heaven by your own works, by being good enough, then what was the point of that? If there was another way, you think God would have told us. There's not. So even the Old Testament sacrifices were not enough, ultimately. Paul says that those sacrifices were kind of like, you know, you'd offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins in the Old Testament, but it was kind of like they were put on a credit card. And when Christ came at just the right time, he died and he paid off that credit card in full. He says, God showed forbearance passing over sins previously committed before the cross until the right time when Jesus Christ came to die and he paid for all those and he paid for all in the future. And he can now be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, he doesn't have to compromise his character to release men from sin. He can now remain perfectly just and justify a sinner whose sins that he paid for. To look at it like a speeding ticket that you go to court for. You go to court, the judge says you're guilty, but then that same judge steps down, takes off his robe, goes where you are, and then pays that ticket for you in your place. He didn't bend the law. You're still guilty. But he, he stayed just, and he just took your place, and he paid the fine for you so that you could go free. Paid the penalty for you. That's what Christ did for us. Now let's see some results of the righteousness here in the, the last few verses. The results of righteousness. Paul draws three implications from the truth that people are justified by grace through faith in Christ. And number one is that no one can boast. No men may boast anymore. Not that they ever have or ever will. No men can boast. He says in verse 27, Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? See, there's that general principle of a a governing principle use of the word law like I mentioned at the beginning by what kind of law a law of works he says no but by a law of faith for we maintain here's my question for our church do we maintain this do we maintain this that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law as soon as we don't maintain that We're preaching a false gospel if we say that you can be saved by your own works. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. And so since justification is by faith in what Christ did for us, no one can boast. No one in heaven is ever going to say that they made it to heaven by their own efforts. By their religious works or law keeping, their good deeds, their good behavior. You cannot be saved by that kind of law. When we get to heaven, we're going to ask each other, how did, if we ask each other, hey, how'd you get here? We're all going to say, grace. How'd you get here? Oh, I didn't know you were going to come here. 
How'd you get here? Grace. No one is going to say, I tried real hard. The person that does isn't going to be there. Because they've rejected, they've, they've trampled on the Son of God, as Hebrews would put it. They've said, ah, no thanks to God's gift, and said, I'm going to try my own. I'm going to try to get there on my own. It doesn't work. And so we're going to boast forever in what Jesus did for us. Second, all men have equal access. Verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? So he's going back to arguing with the Jew like he did in chapter 3. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed, God will, God who will justify the circumcised by faith, by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. So it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. You're not getting there. <laughs> Because of that, it's through faith in Christ. And unlike the Gentiles who had many gods, they were polytheists. The Jews were monotheists. They believed in one God, and rightly so. But if as many of the Jews were claiming, like the arguments we saw in chapter 3, that you could only be saved by keeping the law, then what about the Gentiles who never had the law? I mean, if that's, how you get to heaven is through keeping the law. What about all these Gentiles throughout history who never had the law? Because only Israel was entrusted with the law. You see Paul's argument there? So, if the law is essential to justification, God would have restricted himself to only being the God of the Jews. He's turning monotheism against them, in a sense. Like, because even in the Old Testament, and you read through the books... In the prophets, you realize God is about restoring not just Jews, but Gentiles. And, and through, the, through the Jews, he'll bring blessings. But God is the God of all, therefore justification must be by faith, not by works of the law. And someone hearing that would have said, Paul, you're breaking the law. <laughs> Paul, you're, you're making the law useless. What good is the law if, we can't, if it doesn't matter? For our salvation. So Paul says, look, do we nullify the law through faith? In verse 31. Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Men of faith in Christ establish the law. Those who have faith in Christ are not nullifying it. We don't nullify it. Meganointa, he says. May it never be. Don't even let the thought enter your mind. Instead, we are establishing it. When we have faith in Christ. We uphold the law. This is because the law, as Paul mentioned in Romans 3.20, was never meant to save anybody. Never has, never will. It was never meant to be the vehicle through which we'd be saved. It, he says, we maintain no one ever has been or will be justified by keeping the law. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20, the law's purpose was to reveal sin, both by exposing the character of God and exposing our sinful nature, our sinful character, so that by understanding who God is and who we are, we would turn to Christ. Galatians 3, I think it is again, 4, 3. He says, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. 
It was meant to lead us to Christ. So, the law is like an x-ray machine. I like to think of it. It's an x-ray machine. It can scan you. It can reveal all of your, your faults. It can reveal your sinful heart, but it cannot fix you. You don't get fixed with an x-ray machine. It just exposes who you are. It reveals your sin. And what you have to do from, beyond, from that point on is you have to go to the doctor to get fixed. And Jesus is our heart doctor. He's the one who fixes us by giving us a new heart. When we look at the law, when we see that we are not righteous, we have lied. Doesn't the law say don't lie? Don't commit murder. Jesus said even if you hate somebody, you've murdered them in your heart. We've committed adultery through lusting. We've all coveted. We've not loved God. We've had all sorts of idols in our hearts. But when we see that we're not righteous and we turn to Christ as our Savior from sin, that's when the law does what it was designed to do. We establish it. And we say, it's good, it's holy, and I am not. I am not righteous. I need Christ. I need His righteousness. And so it's those who trust completely in Christ, throwing themselves, I don't know about you, I throw myself completely on the mercy of God in Christ. Totally dependent. I mean, I'm not keeping one foot down. Throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ 100%. When you do that and you put zero confidence in yourself, you uphold the law. You say it's good. It's holy and I'm not. And it does what it was designed to do. And Paul teaches that actually it's believers who are going to fulfill the law because they are the ones whom God gives the Spirit and the Spirit actually helps them carry out God's commands. It's it's really neat. But in the end, after all that's been said, what are you going to do this morning? You're no longer on the wing of the airplane. You're free-falling to the ground. And... You can flap your arms really, really hard and you can try with all your might to save yourself. But it's not going to be enough, is it? Or you can trust the parachute graciously provided for you. If you're here today, you have heard the gospel. This is the gospel passage of of gospel passages. You understand, I hope that You're a sinner, and you fall short of the glory of God, but you also understand that Jesus Christ died for your sins to save you from them, from eternal condemnation, from separation from God forever in hell. I beg you today, be reconciled to God. That's what the Apostle Paul says. I beg you to be reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do that now in your heart and just say, Lord, I'm... (laughs) I'm exactly what the law says. I'm a sinner. And I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If you're a born-again Christian already, thank God for His gift, right? We all know the longer that we walk with Him that we are not righteous. And the more we depend on that righteousness that He provides for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank You for this passage. It's a privilege to be in it be able to share your gospel with these precious people here and um, 
Pray that hearts would understand it, that by your spirit you would help us to grapple what it means that that, uh, we can be given the gift of righteousness through Christ, through faith in him. For those of us who already know you as our Savior, we just give you all the praise and all the glory. And we look forward to doing that forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.